All right, if you're not there, go ahead and turn to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 4 again. We've been looking at Jesus' divine appointment with this Samaritan woman near the city of Sychar at Jacob's well. And we've been looking at this now for a few weeks. But last week, we actually began to consider uh, an instance with Jesus where he was discipling his disciples. The conversation with the woman ended in verse 26. She goes back into town because she is just pumped about what she just heard, that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember how he, how Mike dropped that moment, I am that I am, right? He uses a go a me there in verse 26. So she's pumped. She runs back into town. We looked a little bit at that last week, but then he goes, he starts into this conversation with the disciples and he's using this as an opportunity because they, they had gone into town to get food. They came out to give him food. They said, Jesus, you need to eat. We got the food. We went and, and Jesus says something to him profound in verse 34. And we got to read this again. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Earlier in verse 32, he says, I have food to eat, which you don't know of. And I love the disciples' response. Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Like, that's how I would have been thinking too. Wait a minute. We just went to get this guy food. Now, he's, now he says he's got food we didn't know about. He wasn't talking about that. He's talking about spiritual priorities. And so he's taking these disciples. He's challenging their thinking. He's challenging their value system. He's trying to shift the way that they're thinking. This is what happens when you attempt to disciple somebody. You're trying to get them to think more like who? More like Jesus Christ himself. And so he's doing that with his disciples here. He's constantly trying to alter their priorities. He's constantly trying to point out what's obvious to him, but what's not so obvious to us, that there are things that are more important than your Big Mac. There's things that are more important than eating lunch at 12.15 on a Sunday afternoon and beating everyone to the buffet line, right? There's things more important than that oftentimes, and it's ministry-oriented. And what's so fascinating is this is exactly what the written Word of God does as well. The written Word of God is designed to bump and challenge our thinking constantly. So it shouldn't surprise us that the living Word of God is doing this very thing. In fact, most of you know this passage. I've highlighted a couple of things, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable. Notice the four things that it says it's profitable for. Doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then notice that big word, that. I've got it highlighted there. It's a purpose clause. Why is it profitable? Why do these, what is this thing trying to accomplish? This, the word of God, this scripture that's given. It's that the man of God may be complete, meaning mature, thoroughly equipped for what? every good work, that God might get some usefulness out of those who are being adjusted in their thinking, reoriented in their thinking, their priorities by the word of God. And notice that when you look at these four words, three of them are corrective. Reproof, correction, instruction there doesn't bring out the thrust of that word. It's child training. And how do you typically train a child? Well, Depending on the age of your child, I mean, how many in here had a toddler try to pull a flat screen TV down on top of their head at some point in their life? I, I mean, you, you constantly are adjusting children. They're constantly on a suicide mission trying to take themselves out uh, just unknowingly to themselves. Let me go pet this German shepherd that's growling ferociously at me. Let me pull this TV on top of my head, right? There's this constant child training. There's this constant adjustment or bump in their thinking that we are trying to communicate in child training. That's what the word of God does. That's exactly what the word of God does. And this is exactly what the living word of God is doing in the passage. In fact, when we got to verse 35, Jesus had shifted to an agricultural example that they would understand. Sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping. But as we made a point last week, it's very fascinating because Jesus, the master teacher, I think as he's giving this illustration, he's pointing over here because we learn, if you go back in verse 30, the Samaritans went out of the city and came to him. And as they came out, we made this point last week that the Samaritan men who were coming out to validate who Jesus was based on the testimony of the woman, that they were known to wear white robes. 
There was no crop, no agricultural crop in Israel or Samaria at the time when the harvest was ripe that it was a white field. And someone told me last week, what about cotton? Well, they don't grow cotton in that part of the world. So there's no crop that was white. What Jesus is doing, he's looking over here and these men in white are making their way through the grain fields. And he says, look, their fields are white with harvest. He's talking about these people coming out to him. This is a discipleship conversation going on. And this is why he says in verse 35, I've referenced it. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. And I believe he's referring to these men coming out to him at this time. They're ready. They're ready to be harvested. So that kind of leads us into really our passage this morning, starting in verse 36. Let's read it. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. And so we see that he who reaps, it's, it's a participle here. It's just the reaper, the one, that, the one that reaps. It speaks of the one that harvests crops. And we all know that the, the harvesting time for any farmer, any agriculture person, that's, that's the fun part. <laughs> the rest of it stinks. It's like, you got to go through necessary evil to get to the fun part. When you actually get the crop out of the ground, you actually get to put it on the table and eat it. And so he's going to talk about the reaper first, but we're going to notice that he's also going to tie in the sower. He's going to say there's benefit there to being the one sowing as well. And see, in this context, what's the harvest? What are they harvesting? They're harvesting people who put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what they're harvesting. We're going to see the context kind of bear that out. And this person that does that reaping actually has two benefits. Number one, they receive wages. They receive payment. That's what a wage is or something that they earn. And it's interesting because Jesus uses a present tense verb here right now. They're going to receive benefit or wages right now is kind of the idea. And they're actively going to take that to themselves. And again, as I mentioned, wages implies something that's earned, something that is rewardable, something that's paid out to you. So something, uh, they're going to experience some kind of payment even in the moment. And those of you, uh, you know, and, and, and I know it's getting less and less percentage in Christianity, but those of you who have ever led somebody to Jesus Christ or somebody has trusted Christ through your witness, can you testify that there's an immediate payout? Is that there's an immediate joy and enjoyment of seeing the light switch go on for somebody who thought they had to work their way to heaven, who thought they had to be good enough to go to heaven, who thought that there was something in the future they could do to unmerit heaven and to find out that it's all by grace. It's all based on the finished work of Christ. Finished means finished. It's done. It's paid for. And to realize that and see that light switch go on, don't you enjoy Didn't you enjoy that moment? Didn't you receive wages at some level in that moment? But also, we know that the wages are received immediately, but there's going to be a payout in the future. We don't have time to develop this, but the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, where God is going to evaluate the believer's works, there's no unbeliever at the Bema Seat. Unbelievers go to the great white throne. That's after the millennial kingdom. Believers go to the Bema Seat. It's a rewards evaluation. What is he evaluating? Not your sin, See, many, many of us have this concept I did growing up that the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ is, you know, Jesus is going to put me in a room and all you guys are going to be in that room too. And he's going to flash up on the screen all the things that I did wrong, all the things that I would be embarrassed on. And I'm just going to be sitting there biting my fingernails and hanging my head low and looking at all the sins and all the things I did in secret that no one saw. And I'm just going to be embarrassed into eternity. That's not the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ at all. He's going to be evaluating good works. And you can see that borne out in that 1 Corinthians 3 passage. And what he's going to be evaluating is by what source did you do those good works? And so as we're taking the mindset of Christ and we're looking at the fields and we're availing ourselves to either sowing or reaping, we're going to receive wages for that in the term or in the form of a reward. And that's what's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So Jesus is referencing that. But he also says that this person, the second benefit is when you harvest, that you gather fruit. Now, we understand that in an agricultural way, but notice you gather fruit for what? Eternal life. So they say you can't take things with you when you die, right? There's never been a U-Haul, they say, attached to a hearse, right? 
You don't, you don't take things with you when you die. This verse says you take some things with you. Fruit, not apples, not bananas, right? Not grapes, but people. People that you've harvested. They come in, you bring them into eternal life with you, which is so incredible. Again, he uses a present tense verb right now. You can start gathering this fruit that you'll take with you into eternity. And again, in this case, the fruit is lost souls getting saved, gathered now for or into eternal life. You're bringing them with you literally because they're trusting in the same Savior that you trusted in. Not because you're anything special, because quite frankly, well, I won't say you're not special. You are special. I'm not special. There's nothing special about any one of us. There's something special about our Savior. There's something special that happens when you trust in the Savior of the world. As we're going to see, they identify Jesus later in this passage as the Savior of the world. Something special happens. Your sins are forgiven. You possess eternal life. You can never lose it. You'll never face the death penalty. This is what happens the moment you trust in Christ. And so this fruit is gathered into eternal life. Now, when believers reap souls, they're literally reaping fruit into the life to come. These are people we're talking about, right? This is, this is very personal. It's an opportunity to harvest. And so this means that people we lead to the Lord will be considered part of the fruit that we bore in this life, part of the fruit that we harvested in this life. So think like a reaper. That's the point here. The fields are white. They're ready to be reaped. Do, you, do we understand that that is still true today? that the fields are white, ready to be reaped. We're going to see here that you can reap even without putting labor in. Somebody else has done the labor oftentimes. You get to reap the harvest. I mean, if, if I had a room full of farmers, they would like sign me up for that farming, right? Like, I just want to harvest. Like, that would be the fun part. And it's, it's opportunities for each one of us. It's all there in front of us. And so many times, instead of viewing people as potential harvest, we view them as distractions. We view them as irritants to our life. We view them as getting the way of our agenda and what we're trying to accomplish on a given day. And this is what Jesus is all about. Lift up your eyes. Get your eyes off of your feet. Get your eyes off of your agenda and put it on the fields. They're right there. They're right there. Why aren't we available? Why aren't we making ourselves available? And I'll tell you why. Because what verse 34 says is how Jesus thinks. And what verse 34 says is how we need to shift in our thinking. This needs to be our life first. This needs to be what we think and how we are affected when we wake up. Verse 34, can you say like Jesus did, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you know as a believer in Jesus Christ that God's got work he wants to accomplish in your life? Write down Ephesians 2.10, right? We, we go there a lot. He has created you in Christ Jesus. He has designed you for good works that he has determined beforehand that you should walk in them. He's got stuff he wants to accomplish. What a privilege. What a privilege each one of us has but I love how Jesus does this. You know, you ever heard a, a teacher and they, they overemphasize something? I'm probably guilty of that at times. And so if you've heard me teach, you've probably heard me overemphasize things. But sometimes teachers overemphasize things to the detriment of another. I love what Jesus here does here because he balances it out. Because lest we get too overly focused on reaping, which is the tendency of many Christians, if, if you're not reaping, you ain't bearing fruit, that's not true. That's not a true statement. And I love how he balances this because he's gonna go on to say that there's benefits of sowing as well. Now, it's not as glamorous, right? We all love to hear reaping stories. We love reaping stories. They're fun to listen to. It's like, wow, man, I wanna do that one day. And sowing's just as important. We just don't think of it that way. We always get a little bit disappointed when there's not a punchline at the end of a conversation. And, and so... Jesus says that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. What an incredible statement here. Because how many times do we wish we were on the reaping end of a conversation? I would say 100% of the time, if I'm being honest, I want to be on the reaping side. 
I want to be the one that sees the light bulb go off in their head. I want to be the one that finalizes that conversation where when I leave, they're going to say, praise God for John Clark who shared the gospel with me. They may not even remember all the multiple people throughout their lives who had sowed seed toward that moment that I, as we're going to see, got to step into their labor and enjoy the harvesting moment. And see, we get so caught up on the reaping side, we need to understand that whether we're reaping or sowing, the same mindset is true. We're here to do the work that God has designed us to do. Whether it's sowing or reaping, Lord, I'm available. That's it. And not get so discouraged when we have a spiritual conversation with someone and it seems to go nowhere. That's okay. Keep sowing. Keep sowing seed. Keep sowing seed. That's totally fine. In fact, this gives a purpose clause. Why Jesus just said what he said. It's both sower and reaper will receive the benefits lifted, uh, listed above. And again, this is why none of us should get hung up on visible fruit. This is so natural for us to do. And I want to encourage you this morning. I'll encourage you again when we get to John 15. But this is why when you get to John 15, Jesus' focus is on abiding in him not on the fruit coming out of your branch. He wants us occupied this way and not this way. Because when we get occupied looking down our branch, trying to evaluate fruit, Paul's gonna say later in 1 Corinthians, you don't even evaluate your own fruit accurately. There's so many things that we don't have all of the big picture to do. And this is why Jesus knows us. He says, don't get hung up on that. Don't get hung up on your fruit, on their fruit, on his fruit, on her fruit. You just abide in me. You just enjoy me. And when that happens, fruit is going to be pushed through our puny little branches. And we're going to become hangers of the fruit of God. And this is exactly what he's talking about here. So don't get hung up on whether or not you see visible fruit is is kind of the point. You may be sowing in a certain situation. And you know what? (laughs) To get Southern, sow the dog out of it. I mean, just sow it. If that's what you're in, if that's the place that you're at, sow it. Sow the seed. It's okay. You don't have to reap every time, and we need to be encouraged there. The point is this. If you could harvest or reap in a given situation, then harvest or reap. Be ready for that. But if you're just sowing seed, and that's all you can do in a situation, then sow seed. Be encouraged. You're part of this process. You're part of this potential harvest. And you know, I love this mindset because it takes the pressure off of you and me to be the superhero in every situation. You can be Clark Kent once in a while. You don't have to be Superman all the time and bring somebody to a decision. In fact, you know what I've found over the years is the people that are so focused on reaping, they tend to at some point make it all about themselves. The very thing they're trying to do, it becomes all about them and how great they are and how clever they are and how they said this and how they said that and how they did this approach and how they did that approach. And it's like, and you feel like saying, what about Jesus Christ? Now you've just taken center stage because you're so overly focused on reaping. And the reason you're focused on reaping is because you want to be able to share that story with somebody because sowing stories leave you wanting unless we're biblically minded. (laughs) And then it's something to rejoice in. That's exactly what he's saying here. And that's really the main point. In fact, when we get to the point where we're not all about harvesting, we're about sowing or reaping, depending on what God has for us in that moment, guess what? We can rejoice. We can be excited. Not get too concerned about the role we play, but more fascinated and excited about the harvest itself. See, we need to get our eyes off of the role we play and just be willing to play the role. You know, at some level, if there was a spiritual gift of cleaning the trash in church, cleaning out the trash, that's a spiritual gift, and that's my gift, then I just want to do it to the best of my ability. You know, I'm going to break out some Lysol once in a while and scrub that thing down so it smells good, right? Whatever it is, whatever God is calling us into the moment, let's just be available, That's it. Sowing or reaping, we can still rejoice in the harvest. And by the way, if each one of us took that mindset and then corporately we had that mindset, guess what we'll experience? Philippians 127 tells uh, tells us that we would have one mind and we'd be striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. We'd be rejoicing in the same thing. 
regardless of the role we played. And so this just really takes and shifts the focus. Now, do the disciples learn this? We're going to look a little bit later. They're slow like you and me, you know? They've got spiritual ADHD like you and I do many times. They get distracted. They pick it up in certain points. They're normal. In other words, they're normal. They're just like us. We need to be reminded of these things and encouraged of these things. And one of the things that Jesus is going to go on to say in verses 37 through 38, any chess fans? If you're a chess fan, you know why that's an interesting picture, right? Because pawns are worthless, right? You're always just giving up your pawns. But it's a pawn with a kingly crown, and that's really representative of each one of us in the role that we get to play. In verses 37 through 38, Jesus says this, for in this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Jesus' point here, he's using a proverb and, and the point is this, and it makes so much sense in the agricultural world. I don't know why we have trouble transitioning this to the spiritual realm. Every role is important in harvesting the crop. The same is true in harvesting of souls. And to show that out, go to 1 Corinthians. And notice uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, Paul actually introduces a third role. And it makes sense if you've ever harvested crops. Because I, I, I wish you could sow seed and then just come back four months later and harvest it, right? That's not how it works. You sow seed, and then there's a tending to the seed. There's a watering of the seed. And that's what Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Who's the most important part of the equation? of harvesting souls? God is. What a privilege. You get to play a small role. You get a cameo appearance in the divine work of the ages. You get to, your name's going to be mentioned in the credits way down at the end, but that's okay. It's, it's all about him. And then notice what it says. This is to, to not to minimize your role because look at verse eight. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You're saying that you can be rewarded even though you don't have any cool reaping stories? Yes, you can. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that awesome? Just to be a small part somewhere. If you're a person that is terrified to talk to another human being, and you literally will take tracks off of our track rack and put it on a urinal, Put it at the post office. Put it at your dentist office. Hand it to someone while you're running away from them. It doesn't matter, <laughs> right? We're talking about sewing. There's, there, there's, there's a role for you. There's an opportunity for you. And so just be encouraged that you can be used, even if you're not, you know, Superman. God can use Clark Kent's as well and Lois Lane's and everybody else that's normal like the rest of us. You know, sometimes the sower may view himself or herself as the one doing the thankless job, the grunt work, and then the reaper is doing something tangible, the exciting part about pulling crops out of the ground, but it's not true. It's not true. You're, you're just as valuable to the process wherever you come in and whatever role you play. You know, and as Jesus is finishing up this conversation, a field of Samaritan men are coming out to him as he speaks. He He's literally, I think he's, he's having this conversation. He's looking over here and he sees this field of white robed people coming out to him to investigate him. And you know, one of the things that they're going to see is they're going to get to harvest now. And they didn't do any work to harvest this field coming out to them. They're going to step in. And so this is what Jesus now describes. They're getting ready to step into this harvest to reap it, even though they did nothing to do it. In fact, do you know why the men are coming out to him right now, it wasn't due to their witness. They were just in Sychar getting food. They, they may have interacted with some of these very men that are coming out to them now, and they probably ignored them, blew them off, had as little to do with them as possible because they were all about food, getting the food back. You know, give me my change. No, you counted wrong. 
No, we ordered two burgers. Give me another one. You're cheating me, right? You forgot the milkshake. We come back for the milkshake, right? That's what they're interested in. And now all these men are coming out to them on the basis of what? The testimony of this worthless societal outcast of a woman because she just went back and talked about what she heard, what she saw, what she knew. said, <laughs> This guy's pretty impressive. You might want to go check him out. That alone ushered this group out to him. And as we said in verse 30, they kept on coming. That's the imperfect tense. They kept on coming. They didn't stop. They just flooded out toward Jesus. Now, as I said, there's something that every farmer would sign up for, and that is reaping without labor. That is reaping the harvest without having to put too much work in. Now, any farmer will tell you that's impossible. (laughs) There's a lot of work that goes into sowing and and caring for crop until you get to the harvest. But what Jesus is going to say in the spiritual realm, it's actually, you can actually reap where someone else has labored. Sounds like a good deal to me. Sounds like a pretty exciting opportunity to me. And Jesus wanted them to see that in harvesting of souls, they're part of the reapers in the present scenario. These, these men are coming out to him. He's saying, look, you're going to reap here. You didn't even enter into the labor. Somebody else has pre-labored for you. You're going to get a chance to reap. In fact, the word labored means exactly what you think. Work until fatigue. Work until you're worn out. If you've met any farmer, they can relate to that statement. So the disciples had never had to till soil. They never had to sow seed. But they're coming into a situation now, a time frame in human history, where they're going to be reaping where they're going to be reaping. In fact, they're going to be sent out later on a missionary journey and they're going to be reaping. They're going to be reaping. They're going to be part of that group that gets to reap souls. All they have to do is put their eyes up and this could be happening everywhere that they go. Same for us as well. And so they're going to enter into other people's labor. You ever watch construction crews on the side of the road and you're like, man, there's only like one guy working. Everyone else is just like watching. I mean, it seems that way. In fairness to those guys, I know that they can't all get in the hole and dig the ditch at the same time. But, I, but at the same time, it does seem like that when you drive by. But this is one of those things in spiritual truth in terms of reaping, harvesting, sowing, that you can actually harvest crop that you had nothing to do with tilling the soil or sowing the seed. And again, it's just, as we keep repeating that, it's just a, a, a privilege. And so others have labored in the past. This is what Jesus is telling them. And the results of their labors, perfect tense, have continued into the present with this spiritual crop ready to be pulled out of the ground, so to speak, by the disciples. Now, who were the other people that labored ahead of the disciples? Well, very clearly, uh, Moses on a human level was one of them. Moses recording the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch. The other prophets were moved by the Spirit of God to record and write the Old Testament. But in this case... Who had done the pre-work? Moses. Because the, the Samaritans only accepted what? The Pentateuch. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament, just the first five books of the Bible. In fact, it was Moses' writings that Jesus used to build off of with the Samaritan woman. And so he had prepared the way, he had prepared the soil, labored on a human level. Also on a human level, most, more recently to the disciples, John the Baptist had a unique ministry. And what was it again? Pointing out the Messiah. He, he pointed, he didn't prophesy about him. He pointed him out. He said, he's here. This is him right here. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his testimony. So he was part of the, the seed sowing process, the tilling of the soil that the disciples were about to benefit from in terms of harvesting. On a divine level, we know that the spirit of God was working was moving in the lives of the first century people in Israel as Jesus was revealed in person to them. So we know on a divine level, the spirit of God was moving. We're gonna see also on the John the Baptist level later on in Acts chapter 19, Paul is gonna step into the labors of John the Baptist. Remember, he runs into some disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19 and he gets to harvest their souls. They trust in Christ through the witness of Paul there in Acts 19. Also the spirit of God. We're going to learn in chapter 6, the Spirit of God is drawing people to himself. He's, he's drawing people. We're going to look at that ministry in John 6. John 16, we're going to look at the Spirit's ministry of convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is all of the soil and seed preparation that's going on that gives all of us an opportunity to harvest. This is what is going on behind the scenes before we even show up on the scenes. And what Jesus is going to say is, guys, you've entered into 
the labor of other people. And now the harvest is ready for you to yank out of the ground. And, and again, they were here in a, in a time and space history where it was ready for them to yank stuff out of the ground. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to reorient their thinking to. Quit thinking it's somewhere out there. Quit thinking ministry is somewhere out there, years away. When I, and we do this all the time. We put these carrots in front of us that we can never reach. It's today. We just want to be available today. What is the role God's designed for us today? And that is when we learn, as Jesus said in verse 34, that, that my food, what gets me up in the morning, what revs me up in life is to do the will of him who sent me, not dictate to him what my will is for my day. And oftentimes we do that with God. We do that by saying stuff like, oh, I would never be involved in that ministry. Oh, I could never do this. I could never do that. I, I would never in a million years, I wouldn't do this. And what you're saying is, God, I got a will and it supersedes yours. Just want you to know that. And he knows, trust me. And he's trying to bump you and bump me in so many different avenues and ways to show us what's really valuable. Because you know, you don't have to convince too many people on their deathbed of what's really valuable in life. For some reason, that brings clarity. That brings clarity for a lot of people right then. They miss it their whole life, but put them in their deathbed, they get it. It clicks. What's important in life? What is valuable in life, especially for a believer in Jesus Christ? And in many ways, each succeeding generation of believers since the start of the church has been stepping into the labors of the previous generation. You know, we stand, we get so hung up on our own ministries, we stand on the shoulders of some giants who have gone before us and laid the groundwork and taught and instructed us and prepared us so that we are equipped and valuable. I mean, I can look in this church and look at giants who have gone before us whose shoulders we're standing on. Some still alive, some who have passed away. And we we need to be grateful for those opportunities. But we are stepping, we are constantly stepping into the labors of other people so that we can reap. And it's still harvest time today. In fact, later in Jesus' ministry, in Luke 10, 2, Jesus is going to use this same illustration again. He said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. By the way, whose harvest? His harvest. <laughs> We've got to remember that. It's not about your reaping or your sowing. We're part of the process. It's about him who gives growth. It's about him who, who harvests. This is what we want to keep our minds on. And so the discipleship question for each one of us today is, how might God use me today? Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. How might God use me today? Where would God utilize me today? Lord, I'm available. This is, again, the overarching mindset. And it's his will and his work for us to participate in and complete. And so now, as we shift into verse 39, we're going to see the white fields come to Jesus. We're going to see the outcome of this testimony of the woman. But one of the saddest things there, and it's just a very subtle word, is it says, in many of the Samaritans of that city, not all, many. And that to me is the tragic part of that verse. But many of the Samaritans, we can praise God for that, that there were some of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Uh, And as I mentioned, notice many, not all. It was the city of Sychar. You know, what's even more tragic is later in Jesus's ministry, uh, Jesus came to another city in Samaria you know what? No one in that city received him. They completely rejected him. In fact, hold your finger there. I want you to see this because it's kind of comical as well. Give you a good picture of the apostle of love, John. And you'll see why that's funny in a second. Luke chapter nine, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is later in Jesus's ministry, verse 52. He sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven 
and consume them just as Elijah did? This, this is a comment after what we're looking at in John 4. So, so again, they're still learning their lessons, right? And, and the apostle of love wasn't too loving here. They didn't receive you. Should we just take them out? You just want us to call down fire? Take these guys out? Jesus is like, I mean, it doesn't say this here, but I picture him scratching his head. He, he turned to them and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So it wasn't like all of the Samaritans received him. It wasn't even like most of the cities in Samaria did, but there was something unique going on this day in Sychar that many of them did. Interestingly enough, in Acts 8, there's so many ties to the area of Samaria. In fact, Philip in Acts 8 is going to go to a city in Samaria. This is Acts chapter 8. He's going to have a very successful ministry. We don't know exactly where he was, but it's possible that he was in Sychar. And so what's really fascinating is as Jesus is going to talk about reaping and sowing, Jesus clearly is going to reap here in John 4, but he's also going to be a sower for Philip's reaping in Acts chapter 8. So he's going to fulfill both functions here, and there are going to be some that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, not today in John 4, but in the future in Acts chapter 8 because of the seed that was sown by Jesus and his disciples in this account. So it's kind of cool to see some of this stuff come full circle. And so of those who came to Jesus, we know the following about them. We know a couple of things about them. Some believe Jesus based solely upon the woman's testimony. Verse 39, he told me everything I ever did. And they were like, wow, I'm impressed, I believe. <laughs> That's all they needed was one, one testimony from the woman. We know later as we get to verse 41, some will believe when they come and listen to Jesus directly. The woman's comment spurred curiosity. They came out to him, but now they've got to hear Jesus himself. And once they hear him, verse 41 is going to tell us they believe. And then we have a third group, those who didn't believe the woman's testimony, those who came out to listen to Jesus, but then didn't believe either one of them, weren't convinced. And many of them might have said something like, yeah, we'll consider that later. Yeah, or something to the effect that she said, right, in verse 25, yeah, when the Messiah comes, He'll square it away for us, not believing that he was the Messiah. They kicked the can down the road. Three types of people there represented. Many have believed in him. This is, I put the Greek language there because I want to I kind of tie into this. Pastuo, ice. Pastuo means to believe. That's the verbal form of believe. Ice means into. And so when you combine those two, it means to have faith in, to trust in, or to rely upon. Okay, it's not just I believe he existed, or I believe he's real, or I believe conceptually that he's Messiah. It's the idea that I'm trusting or relying upon him and what he's going to do to save me. This is kind of the idea communicated by Pastuo Ice. It's the same Greek construction used of anyone in John 1, 12, right? But as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in, Pastuo Ice, same structure here, believe in his name. It's used of the disciples in John 2, 11. It's used of other Jews in John 2, 23. It's used in John 3, 15, 16, 18, and 36 of whosoever will believe or rely upon him. It's going to be used in John 5, 24. In fact, it's used many other times in the book of John, something like 93 times this combination of wording is put together because your faith, if you want to be saved, has to be in the right object. Our faith has to be relying on the right object. And see, that's the problem with much of what religion teaches. It doesn't promote Jesus as the one and only object upon which to rely upon. It is Jesus plus my behavior. It is Jesus plus my ability to say a certain prayer. It is Jesus based on my ability to walk the aisle. It's Jesus based on what he did and then me giving my life to Christ. That won't save you because there's one savior, there's one object of salvation and either he did it all or he didn't. You, you can't have it both ways. Now we're talking about birth into the family. We're not talking about behavior for fellowship. That's all totally different conversation. But we're talking about how are you born again? And see, the, the Samaritans here were born again because they had put their faith in Jesus Christ. They had trusted 
in him. They had relied upon him. Now, what was the reason they believed? It was this personal testimony of the woman. And, you know, again, bless her heart. This sweet lady, this sweet immoral lady who showed up at the well, a total outcast in a day. She becomes a child of God and she is now harvesting souls for eternity. What an incredible day for her. That's, that's like better than your birthday, right? I mean, that's good for her. Wow, God can even use the likes of her, yes. And if he can use the likes of her, he can use the likes of you and the likes of me. We're all broken vessels. I mean, I, I know we all clean up pretty nice, but we're all broken vessels. Nothing in and of ourselves is impressive, and yet God can use anyone who's willing to simply give testimony to what he did. And I love her testimony here. It was this word. She was simply a witness. And you know, there's a difference between an attorney and a witness, right? The attorney's trying to persuade you and convince you, even if he doesn't have all the facts on his side, he's just trying to win. What does a witness do? They're supposed to be objective. They're supposed to simply tell you what they've seen, heard, and known. And then they give you the opportunity to decide whether you want to believe them or not. That's exactly what this woman does. No pressure. In fact, she's very careful, right? She doesn't want to overstate her case. Remember, she said, could this be the Christ? And she doesn't want to overstate her case. She's just witnessing to what her interaction with Jesus was. And I love this focus because her focus is on Jesus Christ. He told me, verse 39, could this be the Christ, verse 29. Notice what her focus is not on, what she was going to do going forward. That's what many testimonies are all about, is what I'm going to do for Jesus going forward. That's great. Save that for another time. When we're giving a testimony, we're talking about what Jesus accomplished, <laughs> what Jesus did for me, not what I'm going to do for Jesus. That, save that for another time. Testimonies are occupied with Christ. In fact, what did he tell her? He wasn't even focused on what she was doing going forward. He was focused on what she did in the past to reveal to her her need for him to save her. And so it's just so funny because the issue here, again, is birth, not behavior. We always try to tie behavior into birth, and that's where we go wrong. Because the only person laboring in birth is the mother. The only person laboring in spiritual birth is God Almighty. And he labored and did all the work so that you could simply believe in his dearly beloved son who did it all for you, and you could receive the benefit of being born again into the family of God. Now, if we want to talk about behavior for fellowship, great, let's talk about behavior for fellowship. But how does behavior have any impact on whether or not you were born? Imagine that, the first time your child disobeyed you. Would you go to him and say, now, Jimmy, that disobedience proves that you were never born. And I'm really worried about that day in the hospital. I think you've been a phantom all these years. We would never say that. And yes, we bring that kind of thinking into spiritual things. Behavior doesn't impact birth. A finished work on the cross 2,000 years ago and his resurrection impacts birth. That's where birth comes from. Trusting in the one who died for you and rose again. You know, as a side comment, and I probably shouldn't because I don't have time, but here we go. Some personal testimonies, and you know what I'm talking about. We have this tendency in our personal testimonies to, to get so focused on all the sins we used to commit. And the bigger, the better in personal testimonies, because we want people to know we used to be drunk. I woke up in a gutter one time. I, you know, I, I smoked everything that you could smoke. I smoked things you couldn't smoke. I mean, like we get so graphic in our sins. You know who doesn't get the spotlight? The sin bearer. <laughs> like, it's like we're reliving the old days. And it's, like, and it's so funny because Romans says the things that we used to do we're ashamed of now. And I wonder if many Christians know that, that that's something you should probably be ashamed of, not bragging at the top of your lungs what you used to do and what I used to do, because the sin bearer needs to come into the picture. It's not about your changed lifestyle. It's about the one who died for you and paid your penalty on the cross. That's what a personal testimony is all about. In fact, when people come away from a personal testimony, they, should say, they shouldn't say, man, that John Clark's awesome. They should say, man, that Jesus Christ is awesome. To save a wretch like that, that's pretty cool. And so that's where this personal testimony, so notice her focus. That's her focus. Jesus Christ, come see a man. Come, don't come see me. 
I got nothing to offer. Come see a man that did everything for me, told me everything I ever did. Come see this man. That's the testimony of her. And you know, as they came out, they had one response. They said, Jesus, you got to stay. <laughs> you got to stick around for a little bit. Because remember, what was Jesus's original plan? Leave Judea, go to Galilee, had to go through Samaria. He wasn't really planning on staying. He was just wanted to get through there. But now we're going to see that he stays, verses 40 through 41. So when the Samaritans came, had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed now because of his own word. Again, they, they had kept on coming. They had one request of him. They urged him. It's, there's an intensity here. It's an imperfect tense. They kept on asking him. They just kept on begging him to stay. Please stay. Please stay. Please spend some more time on us or with us. And one of the reasons they did that is because he was an impressive teacher. And I long for the day where, where each one of us can sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and just listen to him. It's going to be awesome. What a privilege that's going to be. And then to have a teacher that doesn't run out of things interesting to say. Have you ever experienced that before in your life? I mean, it's eventually teachers run out of things to say. They're like, okay, let's, I'm, we're done, right? But to be with someone that never runs out of things to say, that's always interesting, that's always fascinating, that every word he breathes and utters is life to your soul. That's how Jesus Christ is. So you can see why they're begging him to stay. You can see why they're saying, you got to stay. And you know, that's one of the things we read about Jesus Christ all throughout the Gospels. Anyone that came in contact with him was impressed. Even if they opposed him, they were still impressed by him because they thought, man, this guy's going to take over. We got to shut this down because he's got some impressive qualities to him. One of the things we learned from other passages is that when he spoke, he spoke with authority. He didn't speak how other people speak. In fact, in Matthew 7, following the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said into these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. See, the scribes would just quote other scribes. This scribe said this. This rabbi said this. this Jesus just came because he's life. He just spoke. Like, wow, this guy's got authority. Not only that, but he was the best teacher that ever walked the face of the earth. He put things together, illustrations, parables, personal insights into personal lives, and then he had this comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament and how it all fit and pointed toward him. Just an incredible teacher. And so as a result, they were fully persuaded. Look at verse 42. They said to the woman, now, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So she had a personal testimony now. The people from Sychar also had a personal testimony about Jesus Christ. And I love this. They said to the woman, imperfect tense, they kept on telling her <laughs> this, not because of what you said, because we've heard him. And they, and they just kept repeating this to her over and over again, which is just kind of funny. And so those who did not believe in Jesus earlier based on her testimony now believed based on their direct interaction with Jesus. And there's two reasons why they now believe in Jesus. First one, they've heard him. And it means to, to really engage in the listening, to hearken or to listen to. And the perfect tense of the word here brings out the fact that they heard him and it had this ongoing impact. What he said just kept slicing them. You know, that's one of the things they, they tell us in Liberia is we teach sometimes because we're teaching from the word of God. They've got a lot of culture mixed in, just like we do in, here in the States. And they'll, but they actually say, you took a machete to my theology. You're slicing me internally. And I kind of see that with Jesus. He would say something and we have this ongoing effect of slicing them, so to speak, or bumping them in that way. And the second reason, just kind of in closing, we know that this is indeed the Christ the savior of the world. And they were convinced, a perfect tense. They knew, they remained convinced that Jesus was these two things. In fact, they identify him two ways. First identity, the Christ, meaning the Messiah. This is even what the Samaritans were looking forward to. We saw that back in verse 25, the woman had said this. But again, they believed that he was the Christ or the prophet prophesied of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Because remember, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. But Jesus had declared his true identity to her. She may have shared that with others. And again, she asked that question, should or could this be the Christ? Now, the second idea is really interesting. And there's some, it's significant for a couple of reasons. They call Jesus the savior of the world. 
One of the reasons that's significant is because Gentiles would use this same exact title to refer to their, their own polytheistic gods. Or sometimes they would use the same exact title to refer to Caesar. And I love it because the Samaritans of all people are reclaiming this term for the one and only Savior of the world. They're reclaiming it. They're bringing it back to something that's biblical. And you know, it's significant for a few other reasons. Number one, to call him a savior implies the world needs saving. You know, there's many people in our day that don't, they don't believe in hell. They don't think hell exists. They don't think a place of eternal torment exists. And my question for those people has always been, well, if you've heard the, the Bible refer to Jesus as a savior, and they say, yeah, I said, well, if he's not saving us from hell, what's he saving us from? It's a hard question to answer. And the fact that he is a savior and that God calls him a savior and that God sent him as a savior implies that God knows something about the state of mankind that we need saving. And so he's the savior of the world. To call him savior implies he's the one that does the saving. And I can't tell you how many times we get this confused because we start trying to combine behavior with birth. We, we try to mix those two together. But the whole concept of a savior, the whole concept of saving implies that I could not save myself. Somebody else needed to do it. To use a swimming example, I don't say that a lifeguard saved me and I swam to the edge of the pool. (laughs) Those two are mutually exclusive. Because if I say a lifeguard saved me, you know what? I swallowed a little water. I was close to drowning. If I say that terminology, I would never say I swam to the side and the lifeguard saved me. Those two don't go together. And so to say he's a savior implies that he's the one that does the saving. And then finally, to call him the savior of the world reveals that even the Samaritans received him. The Jews did not. Jesus had said earlier to the woman, salvation is of or out of the Jews, but it was for the entire world. This savior sent by the God of the universe was designed to save or provide salvation for the entire world. The question is, will you trust in his solution to save you. And that's really the comment. And so we'll pick up there next week. Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word this morning. And again, we pray that your son was um, glorified and exalted in in what we shared. And Lord, just grateful to be able to look at these um, instances in in his life where he's discipling his disciples and Lord, so many applications here. We, we hesitate to try to get to all of them, knowing that your spirit is, is able to do that for each one of us, uh, where we stand, where we sit, where our feet touch the ground in our daily lives. And so we pray that you would do that, do that work in, in each one of our lives and hearts and minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.